Welcome to Disability News and Views, a program brought to you by the Mayor's Commission for Persons with Disabilities. My name is Kristen McCosh, and I'm the Disability Commissioner and ADA Title II Coordinator for the City of Boston. We're really glad to be back hosting our show after a two-year hiatus due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd like to start by letting you know some exciting news. This year, we're hosting our annual Disability Community Forum live and in person. It's gonna be held on May 11th from 2 to 4 p.m. at Suffolk University Law School on Tremont Street. It's a great opportunity for people in the disability community to come out and meet city officials, ask questions, and give us feedback on our work for the city of Boston. I'd also like to know, let you know that we have ADA Day scheduled for this year as well. That's gonna be on July 19th uh, from 12 to two on Boston City Hall Plaza. This will also be an unveiling of the plaza because it's just wrapping up its renovation to become fully ADA compliant. We're excited to welcome people with disabilities onto the plaza where there will be no more steep slopes, no more uneven brick and no more steps. So come out and join us on July 19th at 12 noon on City Hall Plaza for ADA Day. Another thing that you may have noticed if you're out and about in the city is outdoor dining is back. It started on April 1st and it's located in uh, several neighborhoods throughout the city. Our office works very closely with other city departments and restaurants to ensure that all the outdoor patio spaces are accessible and that the sidewalk remains usable for people with disabilities. We ensure that there is room to get around the tables at inside the patios, the outdoor patios, and we also pay attention to ensure that there's a clear path of travel along all the sidewalks in the city. So if you haven't tried outdoor dining yet, please do so and send us some feedback about how the access was. Finally, I'd like to let you know that our next Disability Commission Advisory Board meeting will be held on April 20th at 5.30 on Zoom. You can get more information about that at boston.gov disability. We welcome the public to join. You can join through Zoom, you can join online, or you can watch it on cable TV. It's a chance for you to listen to the initiatives that we're working on in the office and get to meet our advisory board members. And now I'd like to turn the show over to my co-host, Ken Meyer, who's speaking with our guest this month, Kyle Robideau, who is an active um, athlete in the para-athletic division of the Boston Marathon and a former commissioner advisory board member. Ken? Thank you, Commissioner, and it's nice to be back with all of you again. Kyle, good to talk to you. We've talked before. We're all excited about the Boston Marathon. Are you going to be a participant this year? Hey, Ken, great to see you and always nice to reconnect. And yes, I am planning to run the Boston Marathon in what is probably just over one week. All right, let's, let's talk a little bit about, about you before we get into the marathon. Now, I know when you were younger, you, you suffered from retinitis pigmentosa. Was that one of the reasons why you decided to run and, and get involved in marathons as kind of a release and a relief? I think I initially started running, which then led to marathoning and ultra marathoning, partly due to health reasons. You know, I was incredibly overweight and I was on the path to type two diabetes, which in a roundabout way, my father passed away from, and my cholesterol was off the charts and I couldn't keep up with my, at the time, two-year-old daughter. So it was really 
more about physical health, but then when I quickly started running, it also became all about mental health and just giving me space to decompress and also help me manage, you know, my vision loss as well. When did you start running in a marathon? I know the BAA wasn't the first one, so you must have done others before that. I did. I think I started. I, I should have looked up these dates, but I started running. I mean, I, I grew up running more so to stay fit for sports. So I played all like all types, every ball sport I essentially played. So I kind of ran for to be in shape, not because I loved it. And then I started running again in 2010. And I think I did my first marathon, which was the Mount Desert Island Marathon, also known as MDI in Maine, where I grew up. Uh, I think I did that in 2012. All right. Now, I know that somebody like me can't just decide to run in the BAA and fill out a form and away we go. So what criteria is there? What's qualifying times? And, and tell us about that whole process. That's a great question. So I can speak specifically to, you know, the para athletic division and the mobility division specific to individuals with vision loss. So uh, and they actually changed things. So prior to three years ago, there was just a straight qualifying time of you had to run another Boston Marathon qualified race under five hours to then be eligible to run in the visually impaired division. And uh, roughly two to three years ago, the Boston Athletic Association, which organizes and sponsors the Boston Marathon, changed things up slightly. So now there's essentially two divisions or two choices for runners who are blind or visually impaired. And I think the same is for amputees as well. And then the wheelchair athletes and hand cyclists have separate divisions. So for folks who are blind or visually impaired, there's now called the para athletic division, which is based on your age and your gender, and then your classification for vision loss. So for me, Roughly, I would have to run about a four hour and five minute marathon to qualify for the para athletic division. And that's about 30 minutes slower than the qualifying time if I did not have a vision impairment uh, and just based on my age and gender. And then for the mobility impaired division, they kept the same five hour threshold. All right. Now you, you have to be 18 either on the day of the marathon or before it starts, right? I am way over 18, so I haven't paid attention in that number in years, but I think you're correct, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, now, I know you have to have a sighted guide. Tell us a little bit about that. How do, who do you have and, and how do you find them? And are they always have to be in as good a shape as you. And do you practice ahead of time? All that kind of question. So I'll try to go backwards in reverse. So we try to practice beforehand, but it doesn't always work out. And guides definitely have to be faster or be able to run at a faster pace than I do, partly because I want them to be able to kind of continue at the pace that I'm running at for a long period of time. And this year, I'm super excited to be running with Tina Muir, who is uh, originally from the UK. She now lives in St. Louis. I don't know how long she's been in the States, but I know for a number of years, uh, she competed in the world championships uh, for kind of Team UK. And now she hosts a running podcast called Running for Real. 
and she's a sponsored athlete and blazing fast and amazing human. And she's done some guiding before, but she and I have never run together. So we're hoping to connect possibly the day before the marathon to sync up a little bit, but I'm thrilled that she's coming out to run Boston. I know she competed in Boston at least once with as a, an elite athlete. So this will be her first time guiding in Boston. And I've decided to have, she's my only guide and she is more than fit to keep up with me. And in terms of finding guides, it's all about networking and cultivating relationships. So I tap into running clubs and shoe stores and run groups, my own personal networks. Social media is a great tool to recruit guides. And now there's this website called United in Stride, which also helps facilitate the matching process for runners and guides as well. Now, when they submit or when you submit the the qualification times, is there any difference between what you have to submit and someone that doesn't have a disability? So now there, so I described those two divisions. And so for the para athletic division, I think this is true. You actually have to, like I, I ran in that division and you have to provide documentation and paperwork, essentially uh, documenting what classification you're in. So like a T11, T12 or T13, which is based on your usable vision. And then for the mobility impaired division, and also what was set up in place years ago, you just had to provide a letter stating that you were legally blind. So the threshold of legal blindness allowed or gave you the qualification to run the Boston Marathon in the visually impaired division. But now for the para-athletic division, if you're going to run in that, you have to provide proof of classification as well. Um like I know when you fill out your income tax, you have to submit every year that you have a visual impairment or whatever. You have to do that every year for the marathon or does one letter hold for a long time unless something changes? Thankfully it holds except for, so if you start out as a, like, let's say T13, which is, and let's not get caught up in the numbers, but you know, it's, it's T12 is a step below that. So as someone who identifies as T12 has less usable vision than T13. And then there's T11. So right now they're grouping T11 and T12 kind of in the same division. And then T13 is standalone. So in order to drop or change from T13 to T11 slash T12, you would have to provide more documentation because you're essentially changing your classification. Otherwise, just that letter stating that you are in a non-corrective uh, you have a non-corrective, non-improvement vision impairment. You really only have to provide that documentation once. Now, I can remember way, way back that the marathon would start at 11 o'clock in the morning and everyone would leave all at once. Uh, they've changed that. Um, you like that better? I've never run it differently. So right now, I they are starting the elite women and elite men right around 9.30, give or take a few minutes. And the first wave that is comprised of like non-elite athletes this year, I think begins at 10 a.m. So I actually have a 10 a.m. start, but I'm starting at the back of that first wave. All right. Tell me um, um, what are 
disabilities that that keep people from running or that they will not allow as far as the disabled population is concerned? I think when you mention that doesn't allow someone to run, I mean, for me, I mean, I, I think everyone is, well, I think the word allowed is, is, is a difficult word, but I think everyone right now is eligible to run or able to run in terms of, you know, if you put your mind to it and you're determined, you can do it. I don't know all of like, if we're talking like races like the Boston Marathon, I don't know the exact kind of qualifications or what they're requiring, except for what they require for folks who are blind or visually impaired. So for example, for like T11 and T12s, when we're running with our guides, we have to have guides and we have to be tethered to our guide. Folks in the T13 classification can choose to run with or without a guide. And then I believe if they run with a guide, they don't have to necessarily be tethered to them. What's been your fastest time? That is a very good question. I unfortunately don't keep a lot of track of time and how many races I've run. I think my fastest marathon is 336, maybe. Wow, that's good. Yeah, that's I'm great. pretty, thanks. I mean, I'm, I'm mid-packer. You know, I'm right in there in kind of the middle of, of everyone. I mean, I, I could never run it or even run it that fast. I can run to the men's room pretty well, but when you talk about the Boston Marathon, it's, it's, a, it's a little bit different. Now, tell me, it must make you feel good when you are running and there are people along the route that cheer you on and offer you, they offer you food and water and all that? They do. And sometimes if you're lucky, beer too. So... <laughs> I, uh, you know, I actually do most of my running and racing right now on trails in the woods. So it's a very different environment. It's quieter, it's less people. So in the Boston Marathon, for the most part, is the only marathon road race that I'm running. And it is great. It's a treat. I run it because it's in my backyard, literally, and it's my hometown marathon. And because of that crowd support and the spectator support. So for as much as I love being in the woods and the quiet aspect of it, I also do appreciate the crowd energy and the time that spectators take, including my family members, to come out and cheer runners on. And it's it's a one big party and it's hard not to run that. And it's also very challenging not to thrive off of that energy and really embrace it, which at the end of the day is, I think, what makes Boston special. I know they've offered cash prizes now that they did not offer before as an incentive, but how are people, are there more people now with disabilities running in the marathon? Has that grown or has that decreased? That's a very good question. One that I I don't know. I don't feel comfortable saying exactly how it's grown or not. I do know that it's evolved, right? So I spoke a little bit about the para athlete division within the blind or visually impaired division. You obviously mentioned that there's now money available for runners who are blind or visually impaired. There's always been cash prizes for the wheelchair division. Maybe three or four years ago, they started providing prize money for the hand cyclists. So it's definitely evolved, but I, I don't know sheer numbers, how much of it has changed. I know that there's 
it's continued to grow within the blind and visually impaired community in terms of just sheer interest and in how many folks are coming out. There's probably every year 30 to 35 individuals who are blind and visually impaired that are running Boston. There's another marathon out in California and Sacramento that has probably about 50 athletes who are blind and visually impaired who are participating in either the marathon or the relay race. So it's definitely growing. All right. Let's switch gears a little bit. You have changed careers. You worked for a long time with the uh, Mass Association for the Blind Visually Impaired, or MABV, as they used to call it. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about some of the work that you did over there. So I worked at MABV for about seven years, and I really enjoyed it. It was an intentional job switch in which, you know, I wanted to work with, quote unquote, my people and pursue, <laughs> pursue you know, I'd worked with mostly in communities in Boston, particularly within communities that are Spanish speaking and of a lower income, neither of which I am. So I wanted to kind of seek out working with individuals that are blind or visually impaired. So I spent about seven years there kind of directing and developing their statewide volunteer program. I helped organize and direct, definitely did not coordinate the 36 to 38 low vision peer support groups that that MAPV runs throughout the state. And I also, along with many others, really tried to help change the culture in the work environment there. When I started working there, there's maybe one or two other individuals who were blind or visually impaired, maybe more, but definitely not in leadership. So when I left, there was significantly more individuals who with lived experience in leadership roles there, including the executive director of MAPV was someone who's, uh, who is blind. So. I'm really proud of, of that work and the programs and the people that MAPV supports. I would I would, would be willing to bet that the advancement in technology has helped in that situation as well. I mean, it's a lot easier now than it used to be. It is, it is. I think it's made it more accessible and obviously remote working is, is helpful. There's not as many transportation barriers and just on a personal level today, I learned, actually I called a former MAVV coworker because I have a very, I, I still have usable vision and I have a very difficult time magnifying and enlarging uh, Google slides or PowerPoint slides. So I had to do a presentation today. I couldn't figure out how to magnify within Google slides. So I actually called my old coworker who was the technology director and he had a great workaround in which he knew that I use an iPhone. And he's like, if you open up the Google slides and on your iPhone, everything on an iPhone is enlargeable using pinch screen. He's like, so now you just get to get a cable to connect your iPhone to your desktop monitor. Cause I, I use a laptop actually provided by the mass commission for the blind, but I have a desktop monitor and I still have some usable vision. So he's like, connect your iPhone to that monitor and then pinch screen and enlarge the slides onto from your essentially your iPhone onto that desktop monitor, which I'm pretty certain that did not exist 20 years ago. <laughs> now, you just mentioned the Mass Commission for the Blind. I'm, uh, and an age-old question, describe the difference between the two agencies, or is there not one? They're just dedicated There's, to the same thing. I think they're, they're dedicated to the same thing. Their mission is the same in terms of who they work with. A lot of program overlap, some programs MCB runs that MAVV does not and vice versa. 
And at the time, I don't know how much of this has changed over the past two years, but the biggest, we would describe it as the biggest difference is obviously MCB is a state agency, MAVV is a, a, a private nonprofit, but MCB at the time was working with only individuals who are legally blind. And I think that's changed a little bit, whereas MAVV works with anyone experiencing vision loss. You don't have to meet that legal blindness threshold. Do both services work well with people who are retired or are they kind of, uh, do they kind of limit what they can do with people who are not out of work? I know that MAVV, I don't know the percentages anymore, but a significant number, well over 500 people, because that's how many individuals would attend the low vision peer support groups, were or are older adults who most are retired, probably not all of them. And that funding was actually provided through the Mass Commission for the Blind. I know that the Mass Commission also has an older adult program. So I think they both work and support older adults. I also know that just the way that government works, there is a lot of emphasis on supporting and empowering and engaging individuals who are in the workforce. So MCB does great work within within that space. It's, it's why I've been able to receive the technology that I need to succeed at work. I've recently done another round of orientation and mobility with my white cane at my new place of employment just to help me get back and forth to the train. And they helped identify my, my inside of my office space in the building as well. So I think they do good work in that workforce space. And if people want to volunteer to be a reader or a shopper with anyone with for M M A B, how would mm -hmm. they go about doing that? Oh, I'm a little rusty with all the information. <laughs> I it's funny how quickly you forget things. I mean, I would I, would I know steer, I, I would steer folks to their website, which I'm pretty certain is still mabvi.org, and there's a volunteer link on their website as well. And very quickly, what are you doing these days to bring home the bacon? Yeah, so I'm super stoked to work at, the, well, the city of Boston uh, within the mayor's office of housing at the Office of Housing Stability. So I'm lucky to be able to interact a little bit, hopefully more with the uh, Persons with Disability Commission and the Office of Housing Stability essentially helps stabilize individuals' housing within the city of Boston. So we do eviction prevention work. We have a rental relief fund if people are in arrears or need support with paying utility payments and so forth. And then we also have a number of housing crisis coordinators that don't necessarily do housing search, but they help kind of triage and support individuals, particularly families who are a little bit more vulnerable, need more support. So I have a long history of working within the affordable housing community. So I'm very, very excited to be back doing that. All right, any phone numbers or websites you wanna give out before we wrap it up? Sure. If folks are looking to contact the Office of Housing Stability, they can call 617-635-4200. And the OHS website is under the boston.gov forward slash housing stability. And if folks are interested in connecting with me, my website, my personal website is just kylerobidoux.com. Spell Robidoux. R O B as in boy, <laughs> I D as in David, O U X. 
That'll do it. Listen, on behalf of the commission, good luck to you on the marathon when you're running. I won't be there, but but I'll be running with you in spirit. Excellent. I uh, I really appreciate that. I do try to every mile think of someone. So I'm going to slot you in maybe in the late in the late 20s to keep me moving. Kyle, on behalf of the commission, good luck with the Boston Marathon. You're an interviewer's dream. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I hope we can do it again sometime. And that will do it for this edition of Disability News and Views. So long, everybody. So spring in Boston means it's time to start getting back out and doing recreation and sports. We know that the Boston Marathon is held every Patriots Day. And we also know that um, there are a lot of other programs, uh, sports and recreation for people with disabilities in the local area. I'm gonna share some uh, programs in case anyone's interested in participating or just going to see what it's all about. Uh, first of all, we have adaptive sports in power wheelchair soccer at the Tobin Community Center. Spalding Rehab Hospital has an adaptive sports program. We also have accessible camping through the DCR. They have accessible campsites which includes cabins, yurts, tents, and RVs. There are several accessible hiking trails, um, more than 33 through the DCR. And uh, Boston has some in uh, South Boston, Pleasure Bay and Castle Island, on the Charles River Esplanade, Belle Isle Ma Marsh Reservation, Spectacle Island on Boston, uh, Boston Harbor Islands, and Jamaica Pond. We also have accessible boating programs through community boating at the Charles River Esplanade and Piers Park Sailing in East Boston. Accessible swimming. Uh, BCYF centers, the Boston Centers for Youth and Family, have 16 indoor pools and two outdoor pools. Many pools have lifts in place or are currently under construction. If you're interested in swimming at any of these pools, I would encourage you to call the individual BCYF site to see what the status is of their lift. We have accessible beaches in Boston, M Street in South Boston, Constitution Beach in East Boston, and in Savin Hill, we have Malibu Beach. Um, there's also an event held every summer called Beachability, which is hosted by Triangle and you can check their website for information on their 2022 event. And there's also accessible golfing. Massachusetts Para Golfers Association is um, up and running. So anyone who likes to golf should check that out. Accessible fishing. South Boston has an accessible fishing pier close to an accessible picnic area with views of Carson Beach, M Street Beach and Pleasure Bay. Jamaica Plain has an accessible fishing pier located around Jamaica Pond Path. And the Boston Harbor Islands uh, has accessible fishing as well. And then for information on just overall accessible and adaptive recreation programs, you can check out DCR's Universal Access Program at their website um, listed below. Thank you all for tuning in for this edition of Disability News and Views, and we'll see you next month.